0: Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a fantastic guest from my men's league hockey team and serial entrepreneur Greg Packer. Greg was born in Detroit. He graduated from the University of Michigan. Go Blue and went on to build two large professional employer organizations, or PEOs. Greg built his first PEO, Amstaff, right out of college and sold the business eventually to ADP, which rebranded as ADP Total Source. At ADP, Greg built the business to over 700 million in annual payroll, which created one of the most profitable business lines for ADP at the time. Greg left ADP for retirement, but in 2000, After a year of coaching his kids hockey and lacrosse teams, he decided to get the band back together and build another PEO. His latest company, AccessPoint, grows not only organically, but also by acquiring other businesses. Today, AccessPoint services more than 330,000 worksite employees across all 50 states. In our conversation, Greg describes his entrepreneurial journey and how company culture, recurring revenue, and HR due diligence helped him to not only sell his companies, but how he measures the companies he acquires today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Packer. So Greg, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time, particularly like we know each other uh, outside of business on the ice where you know some of my best friends are created. So I appreciate you being here. I know you talking about your exits and your experience is gonna be kind of gold for our founders. But when you agreed to take this time slot, I had no problem bumping Mark Cuban. So thank you for being here.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully I provide a better interview than Mark. Yes, yes. Happy to be here. Thanks for the, the invitation.
0: So like I said, I like to start these interviews with how we know each other. And I think it was, we're probably both on the ice at Cranbrook and you may have stolen the puck from me. I slashed you in the back. You hit me over the head, and then we're like buddies in the locker room afterwards. But there's no better place, right, to for me making friends than uh, on the ice and in the locker room. So I think that's I think that's where we first met, is out on the ice.
1: I probably would recall it differently. I, I doubt I stole the <laughs> puck from you. You're far more accomplished player than I am, probably about half my age. So. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, my one request out on the ice would get
0: your son, Spencer, to slow down a little bit because I took a lot of heat. I think he walked around me three times, four three way, breakaways, and three goals like last week on Wednesday. I, I, I have still not heard the end of yeah, that. He
1: does have the gift you. of speed, and uh, <laughs> speed makes a difference <laughs> yeah. on the ice, as we both he's know. A,
0: he's a phenomenal player, right? Played at Miami of Ohio. He did. That's so. fantastic. All right, so although we like to talk about the exit, maybe you could take us back to you graduate from the University of Michigan, from college, go blue, and you jump right in to starting a company. Can you take us a little bit through that experience? Sure,
1: I'll I'll give you a quick recap. I uh, was actually trying to decide for sure what I was going to do. I was contemplating going into a a law school MBA program at Michigan. Uh, They had a special program. I don't know if they still have it, but it was an abbreviated program by doing both. And uh, somebody approached my dad who had a local business consulting sort of business about getting into this industry that was then then called employee leasing. Yeah. Not a very good term here in the US. So uh, I went to a meeting with him, explored that. It sounded interesting. It sounded like a novel new way to do business. So I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. So I put my academic career on hold and got into that business with a company called OmniStaff out of Dallas, Texas. So I sort of introduced this business concept to the state of Michigan. And about 15 months later, I got a call from somebody I'd become close to in Dallas that said, hey, the IRS is in here raiding these guys. They're probably going to go belly oh, up, tell your clients not to send any more money. So I sort of dealt with that. And part of dealing with that was to go around and meet with one everyone. I had about 15 clients at the time, meet with them all face to face. And say, listen, I, I don't really know the answers to these questions, but I know you shouldn't send any more money and any checks that they've sent you for your employees should be cashed immediately. So we helped get through all that. And then uh, it was sort of an odd scenario because here I went in there feeling like I just cost these guys four to five weeks worth of payroll and benefits and other expenses. Mm-hmm. That's sort of tough to take. These are yeah. all smaller companies, typically, you know, eight to 12 employee size organizations, but that's relative pain. Yeah. And, uh, Almost every one of them said to to me some version of, gee, Greg, new industries often struggle, but, you know, gee, if you could find someone else that could do this, we really liked the value we received from that business. You're not having to deal with employees and compliance and headaches and shop for insurance. Can you find someone else? And I'm like, are you kidding me? 23 years old and you want to trust me again? Yeah, yeah. And that was around the time that I think it was Paul Estes' son had defrauded a bunch of people. He was the former chairman of General Motors. Okay. And uh, I was thinking I maybe trashed my dad's reputation in the community. So I uh, thought about it for a couple days and went to my mom, who had an accounting degree she wasn't using. I said, hey, mom, if you can help me start a business that—and I pointed to the brochure. I said, I can sell what's in this brochure. If I can sell it so well, people can lose a month's worth of payroll, and they want to do it again with me. So that was the,
0: the starting point for Amstaff. That's great. Like, I love hearing the stories where entrepreneurs are starting businesses with customers in hand, right? Not dreaming about what a customer may want and then testing it after you've built it and lost a lot of money. You're going in with people raising their hands saying, we bought this before. You know, we want it again and trusting you, frankly, right? After having your, I guess, previous employer go bankrupt. Right. That's a freaking great beginning. All right. So that takes on a journey. You're hiring a lot of people. You're growing and then you're getting to the point where somebody's interested in buying you. And I think one of the things I'm interested in is, what did you build that was so valuable to somebody else? Or what are the attributes of that company that made it attractive for others to want to buy?
1: Well, what I've learned over the years is that buyers, especially the buyers who ended up buying us, like recurring revenue. Yep. So uh, I didn't know it at the time. But we were growing and scaling. I was sort of learning as I it went on. I was 35, 36 years old. And we were looking at, gee, what what should we do next? And by then, I had hired a CFO. I had a treasury management guy on my team. And actually, I had a COO and a CFO. And they came to me and said, you know, we're seeing valuations in the marketplace. You really need to think about exploring the market, exploring the you know what options exist out there. So you know, we were getting calls all the time. So we decided to start exploring, and we had a discussion and decided, okay, if we can get X, then X will provide a safety net for my family that's consistent with what you know, this business is generating for me now. I have to seriously consider that, anything that's at X or above. So we reached out to a, a local brokerage firm, Roni & Company, mm-hmm. and engaged them to help us start looking at some different options. And the first, you know, out-out offer we got was like six times X. The X that we had identified as our, you know, what we needed to be at. Yeah. So I'm a slow learner, but not that slow. I thought, (laughs) we got to go down this path. (laughs) So, uh. I think I did adjust very quickly to not being caught up in the emotion of holding on to the business. Mm-hmm. I, I recognized that at that point that it was an easy decision. I, I needed to monetize that and then you know see where I went from there. So I think two
0: things I really like is that you have some, not necessarily external, but a CFO that's telling you, hey, we need to evaluate what is the value of our company today? Right. How does the market see it? So that's great to kind of get that advice because every entrepreneur really at each stage needs to understand To either go for it or sell, that is a return on investment decision, right? And if you take the emotion out, it may be better to sell today than wait four years and be incrementally worth more. And the world changes, as we've seen, you know, in the last five years pretty dramatically. So valuations can really swing. So you really should be taking stock of what that value is. I'm interested. So when you figured out X, what you personally are interested in selling for, we take that number really, really seriously. So we want all of our entrepreneurs who are considering a sale to go through an exercise with a private wealth manager. Right? It could be somebody we introduce or somebody that they already have to say, what are the next stages of life? Do I want to put my kids through college? Do I want to retire? Do I want to buy a house? Whatever those things are, what are the goals? And then come back to a number that makes sense because maybe you shouldn't be selling this year. Maybe you're not going to get that valuation. So you had X in your head, and did you come through to that number through like rigorous analysis? Did you have help coming to that number, or did you just knew right this is enough to take care of me?
1: My CFO at the time was a pretty accomplished guy, yeah. bright guy. So he helped make those calculations. I mean, I had a very comfortable lifestyle already. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I had a nice car, I had a nice home. You know, there was I had lots of the fruits of my labor already for the taking for me. So really, the calculation came down to, what do I need to be able to cash out for to then in, invest and maintain at least this, or slightly, you know, continue to have some growth. Yeah. But I was also 35, 36 years old, so it was like I'm not done working. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I don't have to be set for the next five or six generations of my family. Yeah. Um, that was really what our thought process was at that point in time. Obviously, when we you know, put our line in the water, and the first, you know, fish was six five X. six times X. <laughs> that changed our thinking altogether.
0: That's great. Now you figured out who that buyer was through an investment bank that the group that you hired. That or? first
1: one was, but then as we we looked more at that particular buyer, yeah, they had a really high you know valuation they were willing to, but the the terms were not acceptable, and yeah, the, yeah, the um. Strength and viability of them as a buyer was not very appealing. So our ultimate deal was not quite that generous. Yep. But it was with, you know, a much, much more solid purchaser.
0: That's so. great. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like the details? Was it an earnout that was causing a problem with a group that was trying to finance an acquisition? Because it's a really important decision. You don't always want to go with top price, right? There's a fit and there's potentially an earnout that if it doesn't happen can hurt you.
1: Right. So, I mean this is quite a long time ago, you know, 25 years ago, 1997, okay. when we actually sold. So we were contemplating these things in 95 and 96. I think every offer that was presented was a pooling transaction type offer. So they were public entities, but as you know there's all sorts of different forms of public entities. Yeah. The one in particular was a public entity, but it was a very sort of segregated sort of sub-entity of that public entity. So they presented it as if they're public entity, which is a name that probably you would recognize if I was to share it, but they weren't really standing behind the deal. Got it. So our industry was a new industry. They were a new player to our industry. And the biggest thing that I recall from that timeframe was that I didn't think that Wall Street and the investment banking world really understood our industry. Okay. And that was part of what the thought process was, is that if these guys are willing to pay this much more money yeah. than I, as someone who've been in this business for 10, 15 years, think it's worth? Yeah. That's how we've come to X originally. Yeah. We have to take advantage of this confusion in the marketplace. In fact, I remember going to our, we had a, a trade association meeting. I was on the board of our trade association in Hawaii. Yeah. And we went in and they were ready for the annual meeting for the vote. And I remember commenting to our executive director. I said, you got the signs all right. He goes, What? Well, I said, you have members and guests. He goes, well, what should they be? I said, they should be sharks and bait. because there was so much interest in buying companies in our space at that point in time. Yeah. You know, that's before Trinet went public and Sparity went public before paychecks got in the space, before ADP got in the space. So they were trying to figure it out. Now they maybe knew a lot more than I did because this recurring revenue model was so appealing to them. And I think that they were envisioning that you get to scale with that recurring revenue model, which is where we're at now with my current enterprise and, each new client that comes on board 85 90% of the revenue drops to the bottom line yeah so you know i think that was our thought process then was just maintaining a comfortable standard of living and protecting my kids knowing they'd be able to go to you know just like creating a safety net yep yeah and then that's great growing from there
0: maybe we just touch on um the recurring revenue piece right so that's what we see Every day when companies come to us, what is the recurring revenue piece? What does churn look like? What is lifetime value of that kind of recurring revenue and the growth rate behind it? So today those are pretty kind of well understood pieces of value. And it seems like when you were doing this, this was a little bit of a surprise, but one buyer jumps out and says, oh my gosh, we want to pay big on that recurring revenue. Were there others? There are clearly others that saw the same kind of writing on the wall. They valued it similarly, not quite as high.
1: I think the light bulb was coming out for just about everybody. The one company that, you know, out of the gate had the high offer for us. I mean, we we closed our deal at probably 80% of that number. Mm -hmm. So it was still a much more robust number than we had expected. But you know, our business, you know, we bring on clients and we manage their their workforce, their employees, their compliance. So a big part of that is payroll. We have a very sticky relationship. Once they bring us on board, it's vastly easier just to stay with us. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to say that the worst companies in our industry have an 80, 85% client retention rate. In most industries, people would, you know, you kill, for that, kill yeah. for that. Yeah. So my first company, our client retention was north of ninety-five percent. So, you know, we would measure client relationships in ten-year increments. I figure that you with know, the clients we brought on today, yeah. we felt there was a ninety percent likelihood they would be there in ten years. Wow! Um, and today, in my second business, we have clients that you know, that company's been in business for twenty-two years, and we have clients that have been with us for twenty-two years. So,
0: all right. So you sell the business, and then that business gets sold again. Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, we sort of had like a little micro step. We sold the business to a guy who I knew well, who I would say was just a little bit ahead of the game from where I was. Also far more professionally trained. Uh, He was Harvard undergrad, Harvard MBA. He and his partner both had those designations. They had both been senior level executives with Pepsi. They were both Cuban immigrants based in Miami. They had a lot of connections. So I think some of those relationships helped them get access to private equity investment and guidance on how to go about becoming a public entity. Yeah. So when they approached me, they were guys I was comfortable with that I knew I had a familiarity with. Still wanted to dot the I's and cross the T's with some due diligence. But like the story, I respected them. Yeah. So it made the transaction relatively easy. And the structure of the transaction was the pooling of interest transactions. So basically. I wasn't monetizing everything right away. I had you know, a, about a third of what the value I was getting access to I could monetize. But the rest of it just became very clearly identifiable. And then 10 or 11 months later, we you know, all worked together to spin that into a transaction with ADP. Nice. So they were starting a, a business in our space and had acquired a small company. But we were really that next acquisition of this company. VinCam was our name at that point. Yeah spurned them to tremendous growth. And now I actually continue to be good friends with Carlos Rodriguez, who just stepped down as CEO. But I think that their PEO division, ADP Total Source, is the most profitable business unit within the whole ADP spectrum. That's
0: fantastic. Yeah, I read a little bit about that. I didn't know how long ago that was uh, written. But yeah, the most profitable division for ADP is pretty impressive. That's amazing. All right, so ultimately you end up working at ADP for a little bit and then decide, okay, it's time to to retire like what what were you thinking
1: yeah i like to say i worked at adp long enough to confirm i was not a fortune 38 executive yeah both to myself and to them yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so actually uh it's interesting because carlos the the recently uh, retired or stepping down as ceo he's going to continue on the board i believe he was actually our due diligence guy when we did our deal with VinCam. okay and so you know he was out i actually took him since we have the connection to hockey i took him to the uh Red Wings-Avalanche revenge game. That was his very first oh hockey game ever in his life. Yep. And about halfway through the, the game, he turns to me and says, are all hockey games like this? I'm like, everyone, Carlos. They're all just <laughs> like this. He's like, I'm getting tickets to the Florida Panthers when I get back to Miami. So it just wasn't for me. By then, Carlos was the president of that division, with yep. the ADP total source. And we had a situation where we had some copy machines break down in our office. And we were advised that we had to work with the, uh, I think it was the Office Equipment Requisition Department. Yeah, yeah. That might have been the official title, but that's what they did. Yeah. And it was going to be four to six weeks, and they had a line on some refurbished machines through, you know, the Detroit public school system. And, like, we need a copy machine today. Yeah. So I just used my American Express card, bought one, and put it on my expense report. And so my first call with customers was, Greg, you can't, you know, back then a copy machine was, a printer was Mm $10,000. You can't be expensing $10,000 pieces of office when we have a a process and a procedure. And I'm like, well, my process fixed the problem. We needed a machine. We were printing proposals over at, you know, the FedEx store. And then, you know, I was somewhat of an absentee CEO for my division. I was responsible for the Midwest division, but Again, my area was one of the most profitable divisions within our subdivision, yep. and um, I sort of had glommed onto remote work a little early in the game, and um, some of the people in uh, New Jersey and Miami weren't happy that I was taking calls <laughs> from my boat on Lake Charlevoix and Lake Michigan. And yep. it's just a company like ADP doesn't have room for a lot of entrepreneurial mavericks within their fabric. They like, you know, you need to show up in your blue suit, your red tie, your black shoes, and, you know, do your job. I mean, your job might just be working from nine till five, but they just don't have that much room for uniqueness, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's
0: the reality, right? When you have the entrepreneurial blood flowing through your veins, you're going to just go solve problems and you're going to get work done. And the rules that guide everyone else may not necessarily apply. All right. So anyway, you finish with ADP.
1: So we had had that conversation and agreed that I would step aside. I'd be available for consulting and stuff like that. And I had a non-compete agreement, but my non-compete agreement was peculiarly written and allowed me to consult and advise, Mm -hmm. but not have equity or an employment position. Mm -hmm. So six months later, I got a call from my former VP of sales. He said, hey, I'm I'm miserable here as well. We need to start a new one. Those calls started becoming once a month, then once a week, then when they get to be like daily, like, okay, well, let's get together and talk about it. Uh, my father-in-law coincidentally was leaving um, a mortgage banking situation that he'd been a senior executive at and they had been sold. So he was looking for something to do. So the three of us got together and uh, decided that we would help form this company. I couldn't be technically and specifically involved, but I could consult and advise. Sure. So I consulted and advised to that and we started my company, Access Point. Yep. That was in early two thousand, late nineteen ninety nine. Yep. I lasted at ADP from nineteen ninety seven until the middle of nineteen ninety nine, yep. end of the summer. And then so six months later we, we ended up starting Access Point. And you know, we, we were able to hire a lot of the, the people who had been with us before. Out of our first twenty five new hires, twenty one or twenty two came from my old company which actually, got, I was in, actually in a conversation with Carlos at a trade association meeting, and I won't name this other guy, but someone who was then running the total source division came up and was like angry with me because I was stealing all their employees. Yep. And I said, well, hold on, Mark. I mean, they're, they're leaving a Fortune 50 company yep. with fabulous stock options to go with a startup and taking 20% pay cuts. I mean, am I stealing them, or are you pushing them out the door? Yeah. So, and Carlos turned to him and said, he makes a good point. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> So we started that company, and uh, AVP is a fabulous company. I, I continue to be a, a shareholder. But what I learned from that process is it was really hard for them to manage and support clients the way we were able to as a small, more nimble company. Sure. And we could take risks, especially in the sales and underwriting process, because we were sitting down with these prospective clients and looking them in the eye. And it was me deciding whether I wanted to partner with this guy or not. Mm-hmm. As opposed to having to have a structure in place where you had people who were not shareholders who weren't responsible for the downside risk, making those decisions as part of a, an underwriting process and structure. So uh, it allowed us to bring on some clients that you know probably weren't as appealing to ADP. So we had nice growth, and you know I was back in, in in between. I had gotten into the real estate world. Yeah, I was in real estate long enough to learn that it's not a people business; it's a transactional business. I'm not a transactional okay. kind of guy, so. That's what brought me back to to my roots, I guess.
0: I think it's probably worth mentioning, right? I'm I'm, I'm guessing a little bit, right? But if you're chairman of your national association, you probably have built a lot of credibility, a lot of respect. You haven't burned bridges. So it's not surprising that people have worked with you before want to work with you again, even at a pay cut, right? So- you might have had the stars align with the father-in-law and, you know, a former employee say, we got to do something, we got to do something. But you clearly have this superpower, right, of bringing the right people together and then treating customers in a very kind of personal hand-holding way that's making Access Point really successful today, right? You've been doing it now 23 years?
1: Access point has been around for 23 years. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's superpowers. I think it's, we care. I mean, we, that, that's actually, our core value is care. I about care that, yeah. represents... You know, we're committed, adaptable, resilient, and exceptional. And it's not something that we like put on a memo and sent out to our employees, said, Hey, you need to start being more like this, you need to start caring more. Yeah. What we did is we looked at our best employees and started describing them in a group discussion. said, hey, what what makes them such a great employee? Yep. And the first word out of everybody's mouth was always that they care. They just they care about solving these problems. Cause at the end of the day, that's what we're doing is we're solving the problems for our clients and their employees. But part of caring was being, you know, committed, committed to to getting the job done because a lot of times we're dealing with a problem that relates to somebody's payroll or paycheck. They need to buy groceries this week or their health insurance they may be having a baby this month. We need to be adaptable because a lot of times the client calls and they're screaming and yelling at us about a problem. It isn't our fault. We didn't create the problem. Their local insurance guy did or somebody else did, but we, you know, we have to help solve it. So we have to also then be resilient as a, a result as well. And then we sort of stumbled upon a process. Uh, I was fortunate to meet Peter Nordstrom when they opened up the Nordstroms here in uh, Somerset. I had lunch with him and a couple other guys. And one of the guys asked them about Nordstrom's U because they have this great you know, customer service mm-hmm. training center. He goes, yeah, he goes, that sounds great. I wish we did. He goes, honestly, we just try to hire nice people that care and teach them how to run a cash register. And that's kind of what I did in building my business, just to try to hire nice people that care, but then also care about them. You know, and, yeah. you know, tell them that, you know, if they get an opportunity to go somewhere else, help encourage them to do that. Cause then maybe they'll come back after they've learned what they can learn there and be of more value to us. So what I'm hearing, right? Culture is
0: incredibly Absolutely. important to the success of your business. Now that, you know, your company has been growing, right? You're growing organically through your methods and your employees' methods, but you also are acquiring companies, new business units, or just expanding upon your formula. How important is culture when you're going out and and buying companies to grow? I think it's
1: very important. You know, in the course of my career, I've been involved, I think, in 13 or 14 different transactions. So I was was on the the selling side of three and on the buying side of the rest. And the ones that didn't work out well, uh, none of them worked out horribly, Mm -hmm. but the ones that didn't work out well or as well as I would have liked were because we didn't have cultural alignment going in. We acquired a company in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and you know, we lost most of the clients, and we lost all of the employees, but that company had been raided by the IRS. Well, we were literally in the middle of the transaction negotiating with them, and the IRS locked up all their bank accounts, so they were in a lot more trouble than we were aware of, yeah. and we then just scrambled. I wouldn't even call it an acquisition. We just offered to begin taking care of the clients. Yeah. And so as a result, there was no clean handoff. Yeah. So I think culture is incredibly important to, to the equation.
0: Got it. So maybe for listeners or fellow founders, is there any advice that you have around kind of preparing your company to be sold? And not just right before you're thinking about selling, but, you know, you've got certainly got culture as a big piece. You touched on recurring revenue as drives a lot of value. Are there any, any other things that you think of when you're building a company to make it attractive to buyers?
1: I think eliminating surprises. Okay. Buyers don't like surprises. Not um, at all. Sometimes it's hard to eliminate surprises because sometimes they're a surprise because you weren't aware of them either. Yeah. But sort of looking at it from that perspective, I think that sometimes people get caught up too much in trying to massage their numbers to prepare for a sale, yep. I think sometimes that generates surprises because the numbers have to be real and achievable. And I think you know it's probably wise to go into these transactions recognizing that in most cases, this isn't the first dance for the buyer. For sure. It might be the first or one of the early dances for the seller, but the buyers usually have a pretty solid, knowledgeable team that have seen most things. Yep. So they're not going to fall for you know, a company that's been losing money for seven straight years and all of a sudden they're wildly profitable right. and half their desks are empty. So I just think eliminating surprises is good. you know, having a, a good, well-thought-out story. But then also thinking about how can that business run most effectively, especially if you're, if you're selling to a strategic buyer as part of a bigger business unit. Like, mm-hmm. what, you know, How will you blend in? And what role can you play or do you want to play in that transitionary process? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a great point. Certainly the financial side, buyers are really sophisticated. So as a founder presenting your business for sale, you are not hiding anything. And frankly, like if you're hiring the best investment bankers in the world, they're never going to let you do that. Quality of earnings is becoming even more important in these sales. Buyers want to see it. They want to know the numbers are true because the second you present something that isn't true, they question everything else and you talked about projections, you're going to be held to that, right? Your ultimate outcome is going to be based on some of those projections. So you want to be very realistic. You can be, you can be optimistic like most entrepreneurs are. The one thing that I think Access Point brings to an MA transaction, frankly, is de-risking all of the HR surprises that you could have. We continually are in transactions where An employee raises an issue that probably should have been dealt with years before you're paying people the wrong way, whether they're 1099 contractors, interns, employees, right? It's complicated. And the buyers want to do HR due diligence, and your company really streamlines that for some of the smaller businesses, certainly our clients, right? We have clients today that use your service. Can you talk a little bit about the benefit of what you're offering today to business owners that are contemplating an M&A transaction?
1: The biggest value that we bring is peace of mind that there aren't going to be any labor or HR-related surprises if you go into a transaction. Our business model is ideally best delivered to companies that have some sort of a middle management layer, so like 15 to 20 employees or so and a little bit larger. But we have all sorts of clients that start out with us with one, two, three employees. Uh, and we actually would like to get in with a new client then rather than have, you know, a lot of times to say, well, I'm not ready for you yet. I'd like to wait. But what ends up happening a lot of times is clients wait. And then, especially when you're in a growth-oriented startup business, mm-hmm. There are so many other things that are drawing your attention. Sure. And, you know, you can use a gusto or a paycheck or something like that, and payroll is no longer a problem, but it's not really ideal. It's not preparing you to expand other states. And in this day and age, post-COVID, we have all sorts of clients that have three or four employees, and they're working in three or four different jurisdictions for employees. They've got a West Virginia employee and a California employee and an Austin, Texas employee, and they're based in Michigan or they're based in Illinois. And so employment rules and regulations drive necessities for compliance in every single one of those jurisdictions. So I can tell you without a doubt, a client that has 10 or fewer employees that operates in more than two jurisdictions, they can't possibly do it on their own for less than we would do. And they can't possibly be as compliant as they need to be by doing it on their own. There's just too many moving pieces. But what it does is, is our model prepares them not only for that exit, but it also prepares them to grow because we're able to deliver a benefit solution, a 401k solution, long term disability options, things like that, to make that small growing employer look and feel like an employer with with several hundred employees yeah. with the employment package they offer, and also provide them with an online HRIS system that allows them to tap into whatever job boards they're searching for talent on. So that when the first person first responds with a name and a cell phone number, that information is captured and never has to be re-entered again. So that when the person is hired, they get an email, please complete your onboarding experience below. They click on the link, their cell phone number, their email is already there. They just fill in the blanks and every other form is pre-populated. It's just an experience that you aren't able to deliver as a five or six employee company. And it builds confidence that you're that you know you get got your act together yeah. to grow. You know, you only get that one chance to make a great first impression with your employees. And as I mentioned to you earlier, your first four or five employees are going to come to you because they believe in your message. Right. You know, they're, they're related to you. They went to school with you, whatever the case might be. Yeah. But when you get to the point where you're hiring, you know, somebody who's, you know, a specialist in a particular area, and they're looking at how do their kids get fed and what do the benefits look like and what's their spouse going to say, they're comparing your package to their package that they're, they're with currently And we make that package a lot more appealing.
0: There's absolutely the value, I see it hands down, but for us as managers of exit wise, it lets us focus on the things that we're really good at, what we want to focus on and grow the business. From an M&A transaction standpoint, I can personally attest to HR problems being red flags in these transactions at the goal line, right? So to be able to do the due diligence, right? And understand that everything is compliant is hugely valuable. Yeah, I can't understate that uh, for one kind of our listeners, and our fellow founders, how important getting this stuff right is. Particularly, like you said, there's employees, you're going to have employees in every jurisdiction around the country in today's world if you're really truly growing.
1: Probably the best example for our local market is, uh, as you know, I mentioned earlier, we had done some work with one of Dan Gilbert's groups. Yep, And Dan put it best. He said, Greg, I don't want these founders that I'm investing in being distracted by shopping for health insurance Yep, and dealing with workers' comp audits. I want them focused on growing the business. And we take all those things off the plate and allow that business owner, that entrepreneur to be focused on things that are either growth or profit oriented, not distractions.
0: Got it. All right. Maybe you can just say where people would find access point, like email, phone, whatever you want to share.
1: Well, my email is Greg.packer or Gpacker at APTeam.com. It could be reached there. So always really enjoy talking to entrepreneurs and founders of businesses. It's it's really one of the great gifts that I get from being in this business. We have a thousand or so clients, and I'm I'm constantly amazed at how many different ways there are to make a living in this country. It's it's a great, the greatest country ever, but it's just it's amazing because people will always say to me, What do you specialize in? And until probably three or four years ago, I would say, we don't have more than five or six clients that do the same thing. You know, We now have maybe like 15 dentists. We have like 20 or so charter schools, but still largely, we don't have more than 25 clients that you could describe as the same type of business.
0: I think we're the same, right? I get so much enjoyment about learning how people are making a living and the businesses they've built. And they're very, very unique. You can say, oh, we've got 10 e-commerce businesses, you know, that we're selling. They're all so different. And to that point, our model is about finding the best investment banker, the best MA attorney for that specific client. And the best makes such an enormous difference. It's frankly the difference that we talked about before. You want X, what about 5X? That is the difference that real specialists in an M&A engagement can create for our founders. It's hugely rewarding just to learn about how people oh, I love, are. Love it. It's fantastic. All right, so we're trying something a little bit new. We're like we're we're on the ice, right? We're tied. We're going into overtime. How did you celebrate with your team?
1: We had a little party. It was relatively modest because we didn't want to, you know, rattle everybody's cages. We were concerned, so it was a very you know subdued, low key sort of a thing. When we did the exit with ADP. We had much more of a grand celebration. You know, I will say that selling to an experienced buyer is a whole different ballgame. AVP were pros. They yeah. knew how to roll out the red carpet and oh, um, have a nice celebration for us.
0: Nice. So if you did, how did you reward yourself for kind of completing that piece of your entrepreneurial journey?
1: I didn't really, like in the moment, I don't know that I really did anything. I mean, within a few months, I bought, what I would call sort of a legacy property up north at Lake Charlevoix. So it's 20 acres of property on the lake. So it's probably something I wouldn't have done if I hadn't had the the comfort and the liquidity that that transaction brought. So that was probably my celebratory purchase.
0: That's great. Legacy property. I love that family. We will be able to use that. And for generations, we've had some guests that come out with pretty cool cars. What was the first car that you bought post-transaction?
1: Well, I already had a pretty cool car, probably in most people's mind. I had a Porsche C4, little convertible. So yeah. so probably the transaction was I was able to orchestrate having the buyer continue to pay for that and have it end up <laughs> nice. being owned by me. So, <laughs> That's that great. Did you go anywhere on vacation?
0: You said you went to Aspen to kind of ink the transaction, but did you go anywhere special with your family? Yeah, we
1: didn't really ink it there. We just sort of finalized the negotiations, and then the inking process was done with the you know, the PWC guys and everybody else all in a room and back and forth and last minute dotting of I's and crossing of T's. It's weird, probably a a, a failure on my part. I'm not a big celebratory guy, so we didn't really have any big celebrations. It's just sort of, um, in fact, my kids have all done pretty well as athletes and I've always tried to teach them, you know, act like you've been there before. Yeah, yeah. You expected it. Yeah. And so I guess that sort of drives me not having these huge, wild celebrations. So. Yeah,
0: that's kind of like you on the ice. You 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 net a few, and you just kind of skate I mean, back I to the bench. I I score two or three
1: goals a morning. Yeah, you just I act just, like I've it all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was that's play- a lie, just so everybody knows.
0: <laughs> I was playing golf with this guy who was just fantastic, and I was in a bunker 80 yards out, and I'm like, I, I am terrible at golf, and I pick some wedge. I don't even know what it is, and I swing, and, you know, like sand in my face. I don't know what's happening. And the ball lands, like, 10 feet from the hole, and like, for me, I throw my club up in the air. I got my hands in the air and he comes over to me and he says, you know, you learn a lot from somebody after they hit a bad shot and even more after they hit a good one, act like you've been here before. Yeah. And I was like, I have literally never been here before. So this is my celebration.
1: It, it, it's kind of funny. You said, I, I think you've skated with my daughter, uh, Madison as well, too. Okay. It, it, she for the audience. She's a, a professional hockey player. She's done really that. well helping to develop the women's professional yep. league and game. So it's kind of a funny story for her because she's literally scored thousands of goals yeah. now in her career. Yeah. But she, her first year playing organized hockey, mini-mites, as we all know is what it's called, the teams got invited to come down and scrimmage at the Joe Lewis Arena Ice yeah. and then have a little mini-scrimmage between periods. Uh, or no, a shootout, but a shootout between periods. So she had not scored a goal all season. Her first is she never scored a goal. She's always like, would just miss, would just be out of, yeah. um, you know, she was a girl playing an all-boys game in sport. And um, so I was kind of shocked when the coach invited her to be one of the shootout players. I'm like, don't you want someone <laughs> who knows how to put the puck in the net? He goes, no. he goes I got a feeling, I got a feeling. So, um, so we now have captured forever a video of her skating down the ice with the announcer at Joe Lewis calling the play. Yeah. And he calls her, he refers to her as a young lass. And she goes in, she shoots, she scores, and she skates behind the net just like, I do this all the time. Like that, <laughs> that's awesome. No celebration whatsoever. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's how she scores her goals. She's the leading scorer in the, the Women's Professional League. So that's
0: how she acts today still. So. Uh, that's unbelievable. So, yeah, my, my partner, Brian, his son, scored a goal in a 4-1 loss, the only goal. And not only does he score, he ends up in the back of the net himself, right? So this kid in mini mites. Yeah. He lifts it over a goalie's pad, ends up in the, in the net. So, uh, Sawyer is the one that scarred it. So he was, we got a very proud dad over here.
1: Did he celebrate or did he just walk away? Like it happens all the time. The little he fist, gave, bump? He gave the fist bump. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is there one piece of advice that you would give to your fellow founders, people building businesses that may be going through an M&A process in the near future?
1: To be honest with you, I, listening to what your business model is all about, I would I would honestly, this isn't just to be self-serving, but I would encourage them to talk to guys like you, guys that have Thank you. Have, have been involved in a process like this and have the connections. Uh, you know, when I look back at, at the road I've traveled, I'm 100% certain I could have generated more financial value for myself if I'd had guys like you to consult and advise and work with. Again, I'm not signing up for food stamps next month anytime soon, Yep, but, um, you know, I think certainly left some money on the table. So I think having guys that you can trust who aren't just the investment bankers, but are people who have who've been on the business side of transactions and know how to identify the best financial advisory team.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think uh, you know we love our sports analogies, so I always like to say, right? You're operating a business that's like the regular season, and but when you, it's time to go sell, you're going into the playoffs and you want the best possible experts on your team. And for us, if you want to win the Stanley Cup, we can put a Sidney Crosby on your team. And that's what we're all about, giving you the best possible talent surrounding you with the dream team in order to create the best outcome. And we know that just absolutely works. So I appreciate appreciate you saying that. Greg, thank you. This has been really fun. Appreciate the time and the advice. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.